You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. So, uh, David, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I'm really honored, actually. Like, you're, you're the hero, as we know, and uh, I feel, and, and this is for the podcast, I actually feel, like, almost ashamed talking to you. Like... I have never been able to exhibit the kind of bravery that you've been able to exhibit. And I don't know, how do you react to, pe to people when, you know, they haven't served their country or, or, you know, I feel like most of my actions in life have been pretty much motivated by feeding my family and, you know, my own personal, you know, attempts at, at achievements and glory, not necessarily, you know, if it's in the service of others, it's been great. Like when I write books, I write books to help others, but you really put your life on the line to help others. I, I That's really kind of you to say it. My, my army journey started because I had a home invasion when I was in college and, and I wasn't any of the things that in my own head I thought I was, you know? And I remember these two guys were high and they broke into the house and 
My mom had had spinal surgery, so she was laid out in bed. My dad was taking care of her. And these guys are just like cutting the cords off of TVs. And they took recycling bins and just started filling them up with all of our stuff. And I went down, I grabbed a shotgun, I loaded it. And my legs just became cement. And the guys had no fear of me, which was emasculating. But that was like, I that was something I had to deal with at 3 a.m. No one else saw that. That was my own perception, my own internalizing of what the moment was. But my father looked at me and my father showed pity. My father was like, oh, this one's not ready. The youngest of four, everyone's got their career and their master's and their degrees. This guy's in college and he's not ready. And I was like, I got to go. I got to go to the University of Fort Benning at Georgia. I got to get that back. I got to find what, how I'm supposed to react. I got to unlock what I want to do and physically be able to do it. It was like there was a synapse between my brain. This is the right thing to do. Someone just yelled the N-word. The right thing to do is to stand up right now and say, this is outrageous. How dare you? But you can't. You're paralyzed. Someone's being hurt in the subway. The right thing to do is to stop that assault. You, 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 it's not like you're a sociopath where you don't know what right and wrong is. You know what the ethical, moral thing to do is, but my body won't allow me to do it. Why is that? What is wrong with me? And the army helped me realize that it's about my confidence. It's about my self-esteem. It's about the way I envision myself and controlling my destiny. And, uh, I never would have thought that I would have gotten a third act structure in that story where I would have ended with, you know, a war or an award or anything like that. But I needed to find it because I didn't have it in my life and I didn't want to be a coward. I didn't want to be identified as it's one thing to think that you're weak. It's another thing when someone confirms it. You know what I mean? Like that's the, the worst part is when someone is like, hey, this isn't right. Yeah. And so, so like, I would like to think that you know, in a moment, like, let's say I see someone being attacked in a subway. I'd like to think I would do whatever I could to help, but you're, you're right. You just don't know. Like what if your legs turn to cement? I'm sure you didn't want your legs to turn to cement in that moment. I mean, what, what was it like the, the, the day after the hour after when you had to talk about it? You know, I, I don't, I, I, there was so much more, uh, I didn't, you know, for for years after war, I thought I missed combat. I thought I missed the fight, the adrenaline, the sense that I could control my destiny. Um, I know you play chess, and there's a whole lot of synergy between just the the two. The way your decisions there's a, a there's a a consequence to everything you do on a chessboard. There's a consequence to everything you do in a firefight. And there's set plays that you're, you, you're accustomed to. Well, if I see this, this is what I think they're going to do. But if I flex a machine gun and I'm too high with that machine gun, uh, what do I do after I commit this move? I can't get out of it move. So I better be right. And as you're trying to put together a battle, you start to miss that decision making of this is, I'm, I'm impacting something. I'm, I'm, I'm needed, you know? 
And it took 15 years after the war for me to kind of mature into a man who realizes that I can find that validation and that purpose in life. That it's not war that I missed. It was the importance of making decisions that I felt were impacting other people. It was the fidelity of the people that I was working with. And, you know, we talk about peer pressure all the time. It's always in the negative sense that peer pressure makes you smoke cigarettes. It makes you get in cars with drunk drivers. It makes you make bad decisions. But the truth is that peer pressure makes you kick down a door with guys with a machine gun. Peer pressure makes you do things that you would never think of doing because the quality of your peers, you're going to follow the herd because everyone is on the same page. And there's a lot of times when you think, why did I do that? And you're like, well, wait a minute. I had to do it because everyone else was doing it. And when you have a culture or an organization where everyone is out for each other, looking out for each other, being honorable and doing the decent things that we have to do based on fidelity and love for each other or the team or the mission, no, it's really not hard to not follow the herd. You're actually showing your individualism by not going forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm wondering outside of military and outside of combat, and, and I, I want to get to the events of, of your book. I'm, I'm almost sorry. This is a, a, a kind of segue away from that, but outside of war and outside of combat, you said it, it 15 years later, you sort of kind of reached this maturing point. How, how does somebody feel that sense of positive peer pressure or camaraderie if, if they're not all in, you know, the boiler at the same time? You know, so, so my war was Iraq. And when I was in the military, I joined before 9-11. And so for a few years before that, this was just kind of like summer camp with bad haircuts, like learn discipline, get physically fit. It wasn't, you know, what are we going to do? We're not going to get our fight. Uh, Afghanistan, 9-11 happens. And it's like this generational, you know, we're, we're like our granddads after Pearl Harbor. No one knew where, where Pearl Harbor was, by the way. Like, is that a part of America? Or why are we mad? Let's go, let's go kill. Let's go fight. And then Iraq is, we're, Iraq is our mission. And it was divisive, you know, before, during, after. Uh, it was the bad war. It was the war of choice, the war that was based on the bad intel. And so now you're trying to like, you don't get the, when I, when I would come home, my buddy would say, I, I just got home from Afghanistan. People would say, thank you for your service. I'd say Iraq and they'd say, I'm so sorry. Mm. I, I never, I'll never forget that. Like, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And I was like, well, what about, <laughs> what about what you told him? Can I get some of that? So one of the things that we, we decided early on was that we weren't going to, people weren't going to understand what we were doing because quite frankly, you know, we had an enemy to fight. I mean, weapons of mass destruction, all that political stuff. I didn't know. You could drop a missile on my head. I wouldn't know what it was. I was an infantryman. I was there to to shoot things that were a threat. And unfortunately, there were a ton of those during that time in Iraq. And so once you start to boil it down, when you're a civilian, like if you're doing a podcast and I'm a guest on your podcast, if you called me up and said, let's you know have dinner. I don't trust you until I like you. I would have to get to know you to know, are you a real person worthy of fidelity? Do I tell you my 2 a.m. thoughts? Do, are you someone that I could really show trust in? 
And we do that as civilians. We go on dates. Is this person worthy of my time? Do I want to spend more time? Commitment to you. I like you before I, I really trust you. As a military guy, I, I don't even like, most of these guys don't like each other. To this day, we've known each other for 20 years. But we trust on day one. And it's like, that's part of the job. You trust on day one. Fidelity is there. You had a rich dad. You don't even know who your father is. You're black. I'm white. You're Hispanic. You're gay. You're straight. You're Muslim. You're Jewish. You're Catholic. We trust. And we're on this team. We disagree. We don't understand where we're coming from. But when the bell rings, your feet are right next to mine and you're shoulder to shoulder with me because that fidelity is more important than anything else. So we get out of that environment and we meet people and we think, well, they're just like my squad leader. They're just like my guy. They're here with me at my cubicle. Therefore, they believe in the culture of this organization and they believe in me and they're not going to throw me under the bus to a county. And they're not going to go for my, they're not going to professional goaltend and take my job. They, they, they trust me. They don't trust you. And so you meet these veterans that are having a hard time matriculating into normalcy. And it's because everything is a failure of what they had automatically with a code of conduct and a chain of command and a structure of discipline. When that's not shared as a culture, you, your brain breaks and you're like, I can't trust anyone. So I don't want to be a part of them because they're out for themselves. They don't get me. They don't understand me. And you, that what's it's leading to addiction and suicide and just poor self-esteem across the board is that we don't have a mechanism of how to bring people back into normalcy. Because at the end of the day, you realize you're scared. I'm scared. We're all scared. I mean, the people that tell you that they get shot at. You know, in the in the history of architecture, there's two types of doors. There's a center fed door and a corner fed door. In 2022, since the Roman Empire, we have two types of doors. And that's all you have to defend yourself when you're attacking into a doorway with a person with a machine gun. You can run left, you can run right, or you can hit a wall. So at the end of the day, the hardest thing to tell a young person in a close quarter battle is just keep moving forward. And sometimes you can't articulate that unless you're doing it, right? You have to do it. And everyone is going to do what the next guy is doing. And sometimes you see that in like the civilian world. Something will happen in, in our normal day-to-day -day, and a group of people just run and people just run with them. Like they don't even know what they're running. Are they running off a cliff? Are they running out a window? They're just following the herd. Like what you must have seen what's happening. I trust you. Let's go. You can't do that in a firefight. You, you, you have to know your instinct is telling you, get the hell out of here. Get out of here. And then you start making eye contact with everyone and realizing, uh-oh, all they're doing is looking at me. And my instinct is like, get the hell out. So I've got to kill that. And I'm going to play that tape in my head of it's not about you. It's about them. Because if you run, they're running. So we got to go forward, forward, forward. And that's hard to turn off sometimes. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, you write about all these horrific events that happened in Iraq and, and you write this in your book. And I want to get to some of the other things you've been doing later in life post-war. But, and again, I know you write about this in the book, but can you describe the day and the events that uh, led to 
you receiving the the medal the medal of honor and and correct me if I'm wrong you're the only one from in from the Iraq war who received the nation's highest honor the the medal of honor and and I know you probably had to tell the story again and again and again I apologize but to my listeners who haven't necessarily heard your story because honestly nobody's heard your story unless they know you or have read your book and you're the only person to win the medal of honor so would is it okay can you tell the story yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm the currently I'm the only living person. There's been some posthumous uh, Medal of Honor recipients that have lost their lives. Um, there's 20 living, uh, 20 some odd living Afghanistan veterans. I'm the only current first and only living guy. But but the it, it's one of those things where you know. So the Battle of Fallujah was 18 years ago, right around today, or Veterans Day 18 years ago, was the Battle of Fallujah, and it was a generational fight. The city of Fallujah was a city the size of Tampa Bay, Florida. It was always a rough area, even when Saddam was in, in charge. It was a rough area. It was a, it had a, a you know, it had a, a street credit about it that the people there were very insecure. They built their homes knowing that Saddam could bring his army in at any time. So these are fortresses. It's like drug cartels buying real estate, like home and gardens, Cali cartel style, like uh, just beautiful, lavish homes, but super thick walls, gun slits everywhere, uh, observation areas that you could stand on a roof and shoot down. Uh, it was designed for an insecure culture. And so when the Battle of Fallujah kicks off in November of 04, they had basically like a medieval style broke away from the city and just isolated it, you know, like catapulting dead cows, you know, just we're not going to touch you. You you don't go anywhere. You're not going to resupply and re-equip. But during that April to 04 to November time period in 2004, the big elections coming up in January and all your beheading videos are coming from Fallujah. So Fallujah is the way it's a domino to fall to, to send a message that there's going to be free and fair elections in Iraq in January of 05. And so we allow the women and children to leave. And so the population of 300,000 dwindles down to about four to 6,000 and every it's like the all-star team of terrorists you got chechnyans and bosnians uh europeans filipinos syrians you name it iranians they're all there and they're there to die i'm sorry to interrupt david but why were they there why isn't it just iraqis there like like obviously this was some sort of global proxy war of some sort so basically everyone who hated the u.s kind of said let's all meet at a convention in fallujah the convention of people who hate the u.s and it's like the world versus America in Fallujah. Like, like what was going on? So when, when the Iraq war kind of goes off its rails, president lands on a carrier mission accomplished. Uh, but at that point you had the Saddam loyalists, the Baathist regime, that's a political party. And those are predominantly Sunni. So you've got two sects of Islam, Sunni and Shia. The population of Iran and Iraq are predominantly Shia. But the ruling class in Iraq was Sunni. So the minority of people had the power in the Sunni Baathist party under Saddam. So you had regime loyalists that just wanted to keep their power base that were fighting Americans. And that's really the first insurgency Americans fight after the Iraqi army falls. And then you have the Shias that are basically saying, hey, we're the majority here. They're brought supplied by Iran. So you've got a proxy movement of Iranian influence, the Mahadi militia, Muqtada al-Sadr, the Shia militias start their own insurgency. So you got Sunni loyalists 
uh, Ba'athist loyalists, regime loyalists, and Shia saying, we want power and we want it now. We, we don't need you in our country. We can do this on our own. Uh, so they're killing each other, but they're also killing us. Then you have Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which kind of fills a vacuum of, hey, don't keep your eye off the religious extremists. And these Al-Qaeda boys are the ones that are saying, the more Shia we kill, the more pissed off the Shias get. So it, we can keep making this unstable. We're going to go after Americans every day, but we're also going to kill the population to prove to the population that the American occupation is not successful because it's not securing you. If you're not safe with them here, why even have them here? So, so Al-Qaeda becomes the equal opportunity. Yeah, it is, but the, it was successful. It was wildly successful because the Shias were like, you don't have our back. The Sunnis were like, hey, you know what? We're better off with Al-Qaeda. They're the bigger tribe and, and they're, they're powerful. You can't seem to fight them. Uh, you know. And by the way, the Shias are killing us too. So if I'm a Sunni, I'd rather go with the side that at least is in my community defending me, even though they're radical crazies. But isn't Al-Qaeda Shia? Uh, well, Al-Qaeda is predominantly, the, the at the time, Al, the Al-Qaeda uh, branch, the Zarqawi, you had, you know, Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda, which was uh, global attacks on embassies and large public relations types of terrorist attacks. And then you got the Zarqawi Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They actually, it's like a subway franchise. They branched off, you know, sold their merchandise and t-shirts and, and they branched off into like a different type of, of brand. And the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they called it Al-Qaeda of the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. That became the Zarqawi brand of Al-Qaeda. What we learned after the assassination of bin Laden is that bin Laden wasn't a big fan of this because bin Laden was hoping Shia would join Al-Qaeda in a global caliphate, in a global fight against the West. He needed Shia as well as Sunni. But the radical Sunni are called a Wahhabi. It's a sect of, of, uh, of Sunnah that is essentially, they grow their beards out long. Uh, they don't, uh, they live their life at the time of Muhammad. They're a, a radical Amish, if you would, of, of what, what's happening over there in the Middle East. And Zarqawi was saying, I'm going to do your high profile uh, attacks to make Al-Qaeda's headquarters happy. But we're going to do it with beheadings. We're going to do it with bombings. We're going to completely go after anyone showing any cooperation with coalition forces. And it led to complete catastrophe. So this three-headed insurgency with everyone that had their own special interests gets hijacked by the most barbaric, really a, pre, a predecessor to ISIS without calling it ISIS. That's what Al-Qaeda of Iraq was. And their headquarters was Fallujah. And because there was no coalition presence from April to 04, it became the area that a disenfranchised young person with not a lot going for him could basically immigrate in and cut their teeth of credibility. If you could do six months in Iraq, you'd go home to your people in Somalia, you'd go home to your people in Chechnya, and you'd be the big boy on the block. Because, wow, this guy did six months against Americans. Listen to him. Maybe my daughter should marry him. Maybe we you know, give him a job and opportunity. He proved himself in that killing field and survived. So now it becomes this huge recruiting center. And they're also thinking like capitalists, because if I could fight with you and get some networking in, 
I could go back to Somalia. I could go back to Algeria. And now I have relationships where I could start an Al-Qaeda of Algeria and I could be the overlord of it. I can, you know, get my women. I could raise money. I could be in charge. If I can find a way to take what you're doing in Iraq and do it in my home country, I'm now spreading my, you know, my, uh, the, it metastasizes across the world. And that's ultimately what Al Qaeda wanted. What they didn't anticipate, though, was that a majority of the people that were killing Americans were just unemployed. 33% were just unemployed people. They were fired from their jobs. The coalition forces made a, a horrible decision to say, anyone connect with Saddam, you're out of work. Well, there were good people connected to Saddam that were out of work. And so guess what? I can get 200 bucks for dropping a roadside bomb. I'm going to do that. And it was an economic thing. So you could, you could cut 33%, a third of the insurgency out just by paying them. Now you've lost all your foot soldiers that are just doing it for money. So now you have the Shia radicals that are sponsored by Quds forces and Iranian Revolutionary Guard. These are believers. And then you got the other third, which is basically the religious, I'm here to die. I don't give a damn. I'm here to take out as many Americans as I can, but I'm not coming home. The only way to pacify those guys is to kill them, is to facilitate their, their fatalism. But you can rationalize with the other two-thirds. The other two-thirds, they really want peace, they want autonomy, and they want control. Well, that's what elections are for, and that's what parliament's for. And this is how you can, you know, grow in and get your power base, get your autonomy, and get your security. But I got to kill that third of that enemy before I do that. It seems like in the situation you described, there's three strategies. One is you remove all oxygen from them. So you simply leave and you ignore them. And then what are they there for? They're trying to, they're trying to prove themselves in a killing field. Well, now you just make it a farm field and it's not a killing field and they've embarrassed themselves. Number two is you just completely from the air, since all the women and children have left and the only people there are there to just kill Americans, you just simply from the air, just bomb and destroy the whole city. And that would be an unfortunate thing, but that's a solution. I'm not saying it's the best solution. I'm just saying it's a solution. And the third is a solution that America did, which was send in, you know, our, you know, young men to go in and fight, you know, house to house against these killers, these, these terrorists. And I don't know what solution was best. Obviously they did the third one and, and, and this is the, you know, at the time where, you know, you demonstrated, you know, extreme bravery and, 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 you know, you, you helped your, your fellow soldiers so much, but what, what do you think now is the best solution? I don't know the answer. May, you know, I have no clue. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think that was the best solution that we did. I, and, and, and I think evidence of that is that we've never done it since. Right. So, I mean, that, that, that's a pretty good sign that that type of old Testament clearing of an urban structure, uh, is not good for morale. So let's, let's go back to 04 and just kind of take a 35,000 foot approach during November of 04, you've got a presidential election of Kerry and Bush. So the last thing you want to do is exacerbate. Bush and the administration doesn't want to exacerbate Iraq. Kerry's running on the failed policies of Iraq. And so dropping an atom bomb in the center of an ambush, 
shitty would probably have been, you know, a bad look on CNN before an election. So we're in around Halloween of 04, we're ready to invade Fallujah. And we're essentially waiting for the presidential results to come back. You know, we, you've got a bunch of soldiers and Marines that are waiting to see who wins. Because if Bush wins the election, we're invading. If Kerry wins, we're probably not. Uh, and if Kerry wins, Iraq is probably over in three months with, with a, a dramatic pullout. So, so you know, at, politically at the time in the United States, there was a mindset that Iraq was going to be better in three months. Iraq is going to be better. Afghanistan eventually will be better. It's all going to take care of itself. And now we look back at it and think, well, this was mindless. Like this, you're, you haven't changed your policy. You haven't changed your approach. 04 was the first time I'm an infantryman. I'm, I'm there to shoot and break things. I don't understand counterinsurgency. I don't. I don't understand why I need a population to trust me. I, I need a population to fear me. I don't want you to kill my friends. I don't want you to kill me. And, and, and what I was conditioned to do was to intimidate you to not kill me. Well, that was a colossal failure. And it led to more people actually being killed. It led to more people being recruited to kill you, right? So now I kill your brother and I think, well, you know what? You're a smart guy. You don't want to mess with me. I killed your brother. But actually what I just did was I got you to tell the story of your brother. And now eight people come in to avenge your brother, including you. So I, by killing a person, I've actually made four more. It's like you're fighting a virus, and every time you treat a patient, you've created seven more patients. And that's what our that's what our policy was, and that's what our failure was. So it was a surge in 2007 and eight that completely changed the 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 way we fought in Iraq. And I find it ironic that you know 20 years of hindsight that Baghdad. If you would have told me in 2022 that Baghdad would have been a, a, a better spot for a potential, you know, summer Olympic venue than Kabul, I would have said you were insane. That, that Afghanistan was the model of the way the global war on terror went, or that Iraq was the failure. But in, and when you compare the two, Iraq is actually more secure and stable. Uh, I mean, the recent news of what Iraq was fighting you know, uh, in their parliament, they were fighting Iranian intrusion. Now that's Shias telling Iran, get out of our business. That's new because that in the old days, that's what they did with RPGs to tell us to get out of their business. Now they're telling Iran, we're Iraq, get out of our, our, we're autonomous, we're Iraq. We don't want Iran anymore. We don't want Syria. We don't want Al Qaeda. We don't want America. We don't want Britain. We want Iraqis to control Iraqi destiny. You're not getting that in Afghanistan. You're not, you know, with the Taliban rule. So it is a, a juxtaposition that I don't think anyone could have really expected. But in 04, at the time we went into Fallujah, counterinsurgency was a brand new, it worked in Vietnam. Will it work here? At that point in 04, it was a bunch of, you know, uh, postgraduate colonels and generals proposing this at Army War College and people thinking, well, Possibly, but let's just blow things up. And the reason why you don't want to take a city out is because when you're telling the American people that Iraq will be over in any month, in, any, in two months, Iraq, our boys will be home, our boys will be home, you blow up that city. Now you have an insurgency growing for people that don't have water. 
they don't have electricity. The shock and awe campaign that led us into Iraq was shock and awe, but we left the internet and the lights on, right? That was a new style of American warfare. Shock and awe used to be, I'm leveling you to the ground. It's what Putin did in Chechnya, what Putin did in Georgia, what Putin did in Ukraine. I'm taking you all out and you're going to know that we're dominant. American shock and awe was, I'm going to take out the military side, the intelligence side, the government control side, but you people will have water and you can watch your soccer games and everything is cool, but we're just taking out the bad guys. That was a huge part of what we didn't want the insurgents to become. We didn't want people in the streets because they didn't have food or water or electricity. We wanted them you know, to understand that we could fight the enemy and isolate the people from the enemy. So taking out a city in the size of Fallujah just didn't make any sense. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, You have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. 
And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So obviously we invade Fallujah. It's only left with a small percentage of the population. By the way, I'm just curious, and I know I keep segueing, but when you say you let let the women and children out and then the women and children left, was that easy for them to leave? Like, did they have pressure from their husbands to stay or? or... Well, honestly, it was so successful. Zarqawi left dressed as a woman. The, the, the problem that we had, no, really, all of the, the leaders of Al-Qaeda that we were hoping were going to stay actually escaped dressed as women. So, you know, we, we would have preferred on at that time, we would have preferred, you know, an another 1200 military age men to stay because we know that ultimately we'd have taken them out too. Um, you know, but they, they all, the, the, you know, like in any organization, the, the generals and the senior senators, they don't want to fight. They want other people to fight. So, all the big see, and left. that's why they let then that that's why they, it was so easy for them to let all the women and children leave because they knew that was their path to, to exactly they're like hey that's a great idea otherwise i would think they would try to keep the women to stay if right. they were going to stay themselves right, right. and I, i'm sure there's stories of of some women that stood you know just like aleppo in syria there were some women that fought uh but i i went you know 27 days in that city i never saw a woman i never saw a child uh, you know, all the, but we were taking passports. It was the craziest collection of passports. Uh, I remember seeing one from Dearborn, Michigan. It just broke my heart that anyone that living in this country would make a decision like that. It's just, I couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't understand it. France, England, you know, Bosnia, uh, just all over the place. It was, it was, it was strange. I guess they were just crazy. Yeah, I mean, look at, I, we're going to look back at mental illness. You know, we talk about it being a uniquely American thing, but there is, there's a profile to these terrorists. Absolutely. I mean, when, if you want to look at, there are, there are theologians that are just theocracy, God, 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 their interpretation of God. But there are a lot of young, just young men that just need a sense of purpose and direction. 
and things suck in their country. You know, they're, they're not, they're not going to be able to control their destiny or get a job or provide for their family. So they need a story. They, they see one of the things as a soldier, I thought I was doing was making jihad less romantic. My, my goal in life was to make life hell for someone fighting against Americans because if they do survive, they're going to go home and they're going to say, I starved, I was scared, and they killed all my friends. I know it seems cool on paper, but let me be the ambassador to tell you this is a really stupid idea. Don't do it. It's not worth it. I don't want the guy coming home around a campfire saying we ate wonderful we met so many beautiful women. Our lives are better. This is romantic and beautiful. And you too can do a summer abroad by killing five kids from Ohio. My, my job was I'm going to make your life a living hell. I promise you, you're going to hurt. You're going to suffer. And this is going to be the worst experience. If you, if you live through it, you are going to walk around. Uh, you know, catatonic from the fear of going against the American military. That's that's what I lived for. And my leaders were telling me, that's not counterinsurgency. That's the opposite of what we're trying to do. And I'm like, I felt schizophrenic. Like, I, I thought I was supposed to be tenacious and dominate. And you're telling me, don't do that? Don't, if a guy is shooting at me and there's a woman or a child near him and they're watching it, don't kill him. Because a woman and child will see the guy die and have a negative impact on America. That broke my brain. I'm like, I don't care what they're, I don't care about the pew poll of what people th think about me and my approval rating. I'm trying to go home to my family and save my guys. Like, I'm here to defend us, defend the innocent people of Iraq, but a person shooting at me is no longer innocent. There was a huge schism in the military between, at the time, I didn't get it. As a man in my 40s, I understand it. Going through COVID and perception, misinformation, how people that don't know facts will just put whatever they want out there. I get it now. I understand it. I didn't in my 20s. And so having leaders that got it in 2004 and realizing that they were right in 2022 is a huge part of this book as well to just explain I, there was a lot of things i didn't understand at the time that i do now and so okay so so you're doing the impossible task of going house to house sort of finding insurgents and you know doing whatever it took to uh either you know take them under custody or or stop them from killing people or killing them or whatever it is you're, you're going door to door were you i mean you must have been scared i know this is a cliche question i feel like all i'm asking is quite cliche questions but uh you must be scared right at that point like every door you walk in someone could just be sitting right behind the door with a gun and is shooting the first person who comes in yeah so so this type of fighting is actually far easier than what we were doing so this was at the end of our, our, we did a year in Iraq, and this was like month nine. So if you take a unit fresh off of training and put them into Fallujah, they're going to get chewed up. They're just not ready for it. They're, it's too kinetic. It's too in your face. And you're going to get a lot of guys that are, are gone. You're going to lose people. 
we were lucky enough to have, this sounds weird to say, but almost a crescendo to violence where you're able to engage people at close quarters, but not in a mass amount, one or two. And you learn lessons and you get together and say, hey, they don't have drywall in the Middle East. And so when I'm shooting a machine gun inside of a building, these rounds are tic-tac-toeing everywhere. It's not a good idea, right? It's not a good idea to just, when in doubt, shoot the entire room up. We have grenades, and the grenades are wonderful. When things go bad, you throw a fragmentation grenade, and it blows shrapnel in a five-meter radius. But there's no ventilation, and they're concrete walls. So when I throw that grenade, all I'm really doing, I hope it's smart enough to bite the bad guy, because if it doesn't, I just sent clouds of smoke everywhere, and they know I'm there. I don't know where they are. So all I've done is obscure the enemy from myself, and let everyone know I'm here, and now everyone's shooting in a direction that I don't know where they're at. These are all the lessons we learned through nine months that allowed us to say, wait a minute, let's use our heads. Let's be smart about this. The enemy knew our battle plan, and so they started to booby trap all these houses knowing the way we fight. So we had to take that approach of they want us to go through the front door. They're going to brick up a door. You open the door, it's a brick wall. They would take out stairwells, stairs that go to the second story. They know we like to go on rooftops. I remember jumping on a roof, and these guys had sledgehammered the roof off and the second story floor completely gone. So you're jumping on what you think is a rooftop, high wall. You jump your squad in there, and you fall to the first story and there's, you know, traps and booby traps and wire and rods and glass and whatnot. Um, they were prepared. They read our books. They know what we we're going to do. So we had to start to think. And, you know, people think of combat is not like an intellectual exercise. It's all, it's, again, it's like you're playing chess. It's not, I know what I want to do. I want to defeat you. I know that. I know what the enemy has. But depending on what you're going to do, is going to depend on how I go at you. And if you start to go asymmetrical, is it because you don't know what you're doing? Or is it because you want me to think you don't know what you're doing? A lot of times, uh, we would fight against people that really didn't know anything about combat. They were just people that got a gun and thought, it's cool to shoot Americans, let's shoot Americans. And all those people knew how to do was die, really. They, they were, it was, they, they were not skilled. And then there were people that would shoot at you and run. And a lot of units would give chase. And when you give chase to someone, you end up in a big old L-shaped ambush, right? My job was to make you think I don't know what I'm doing so that I could put you in a very sophisticated trap. I remember one night I'm walking through a high-walled structure and I could hear a machine gun go off. And I realized these guys had built a maze, like we're little rats. And you're walking at like 10 foot high cinder blocks and this crudely built little maze of dead ends, like a corn maze, and you know, at Halloween. And there's two machine guns on the roofs just firing into it. And I'm thinking, what the hell? I'm not, why am I walking through a maze? Like, I'm smarter than this. You know, how do we think like them? Uh, building contained bombs. One guy in a house shoots at you, you all go in there and he blows the house up. So how is it that we're going to 
be smarter than they are. So we started firing tank rounds through walls. I'm not going to go through your door. I know what you want me to do. I'm not going to do it. Uh, rather than go into the bottom floor, work my way to the top, I'm going to decide what buildings I want to enter from the top down, what buildings I want to enter from the side. If I can get guys on the outside to look into a window and clear two or three corners from the outside and say there's no one there, I don't have to tell my guys going through the door, hey, by the way, just check the first corner. Everything else in the first room is good. If I can get a foothold in your building, I could take your building. If I can't get into your building, I'm going to have a hard time getting out of your building. So it was literally a, a game of what little shenanigans do they want to play? How do we outthink them? How do we make them think that we're more than we actually are? Um, a lot of times they would do reconnaissance by friend where they would send someone out there just to get chewed up and they would identify where all your positions were. That one guy gets shot by 30 Americans and now 150 people watching where the little winks of the tracers are coming from and they go shoot at all those positions that are pre-designed. It was a, a constant psychological warfare of domination, what they want to do. How do we break their will? How do we break their spirit? And so you're scared, but you're also pissed off. And when you start losing guys and you start seeing guys getting hurt, you, you're at a, a mindset where you're like, listen, Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But I'm going to tell you what, if you get me, there's 16 guys just like me that are coming after you. I need you to know that there's nowhere to go. And if I can, I, I would check. It sounds gross to say, but a lot of these guys were using the restroom in their home, right? And you could smell if a person lives in an abandoned home, most of the Iraqis that left Fallujah, they just took their clothes. The homes looked like there was still food on the table. They just grabbed all their stuff and got the hell out of town. And you would see all that. And we would artillery and drop bomb from April to November. If you're a group of guys outside, we dropped a bomb on you. We hit you with artillery. And a lot of dust and a lot of grime and debris built up. The bodies rotted in the streets. No one policed them. And you would start to go into a house. You'd see nothing but dust and debris. And then like an orange cup just sitting on a sink and everything in your body just stopped. It was like spidey sense. And you'd be like, someone's here. Everything else is covered in dirt and scum and gross, but someone is here and I can smell their breath. I can smell their body odor. I can smell their diarrhea and you, there's no ventilation. Someone is using this room and using this house. All right, they're here. Everyone knows that smell. Everyone now knows the game. You go from house to house to house, a thousand doors, a thousand homes, nothing. But then you smell plaque and you smell bacteria and you smell human feces. And you're like, you don't have to say anything. You just look at each other and you're like, you know, it's here. It's here. So now I got you. Now you, you, you're, you're hiding. You're, you're scared. I saw your, your diarrhea. And that's a person that's not eat well fed. That's a person who's nervous. That's a person who's got a, a, an infection. He's sick. I gotcha. I gotcha. You're, you're tired. You're running. 
You're not drinking well. You're not eating well. I'm going to smoke you out now. And you're building that confidence of, we got this, we got this. And then, like combat, you get bad luck or the enemy has a say. And you go from feeling like Thor walking around, I'm America, no one can touch me, to I should have gone to dental school. This is the worst decision of my life. I'm not good at this. I'm not a SEAL. I can't get my sideburns even. I'm just a guy from Buffalo. And these guys are they're from all over the world. I, I, it's a weird ebb and flow of confidence and low self-esteem. Uh, but you got to think. You got to think. Uh, what's the sign that someone's here? Um, I remember one time I walked in a house and there's nothing but women's underwear and bras in a pile. And I thought, like, these guys think that we're so oversexed, like Americans, that we're just going to look at a bunch of brassieres and underwear and be like, I got to smell it. I got to get in the bottom of it. And there was a there was a 155 mortar round, artillery round, right in the middle of these bras. And there was a, 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 a magazine, like a Playboy penthouse magazine at the top of it. And I was like, what guy would clear a house, see this, and be like, well, hold on, boys. I've got to investigate. You know, like th their perception of what we were was very, you know, it, it, it was all cliche of what Americans are. We're not disciplined. We can be distracted. We're not going to do the type of fighting that our fathers and our grandfathers did. And, uh, you know, sometimes obviously they guessed wrong and and that's why we, we took Fallujah in under a month. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So for you, though, like there was that incident where you are going from home to home and some of your soldiers that you were with got in trouble. Yeah, we walked into a house and there was a, a Jersey barrier, like you see at the airport, concrete barrier that like serpentines traffic at the airport. They put that under a stairwell. And so you got the stairs going up and the Jersey barrier down. It's almost like a bunker, right? They got overhead cover and they just put their little machine guns on it. And we walked in a door and it was like, it was, and then the house had, C4 all over propane and uh, blocks of plastic explosives everywhere. And so they opened on us inside the house and the guys coming in, they opened up outside the house. So there was two enemy positions shooting simultaneously. Well, our machine gunners outside started shooting in. And so now you have fire coming at you inside of a house and fire coming through the walls outside of the house. And honestly, you couldn't stand up. You were just hugging the earth, waiting. I remember just being on the ground, waiting for an impact. Like there was, I, I lift my head, I'm going to get hit. I stay here, I'm going to get hit. 
there, and I was on one side of the house and my whole platoon was on the other. And I just kind of looked over for a lot of times you come up with an idea of what you want to do. Like, okay, I got a plan. And everyone's like, yeah, let's do it. And then you're like, okay, let's just, let's just wait. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need, you got the, <laughs> you got the plan, but you're just like, okay, now let's just talk about this. <laughs> this is a good idea. Like, no, this has to happen now. It has to happen now. And you're like, no, no, no. hold on. I got to think about, am I ready for this to happen now? Coming up with an idea wasn't difficult. It was the implementation of it because you knew the only way to get out of that house was to step in a doorway with two machine guns and fire at them at a distance. No one would ever stand in front of a machine gun professionally, privately, on the range. Everything about this was stupid. And how quick can I be? How accurate can I be? And how quick can these guys get out? Let's reconsolidate outside of the house, come up with a plan, drop a bomb, get in together. The problem with bombs in Fallujah, it was like going to the butcher shop. You got a number. And unfortunately, when you've got 10,000 Americans clearing every house in the city, everyone wants a bomb. And there's only so many planes in the air. So you're like, you're 14. And you're like, what number are you on now? Like two. You're like, oh no, <laughs> I'm gonna wait. I gotta wait a day and a half to get a bomb. It's not gonna come. The bomb's not gonna happen. Yeah, and another group is down the street, a half a kilometer away, and they're going. They've got a better radio, or they have an officer on the radio, and you're just a staff sergeant, and no one's listening. So guess what? You're 14. They're two. They're getting a bomb, and then that plane would drop a bomb, leave. Another plane would show up and just circle the city. And when you drop a bomb, guess what happens? Artillery stops. The Apaches have to go home. Once you drop a bomb, everyone else that's raining mortar firing has to cease because you don't want to hit the plane. And so now your bomb is interrupting the war. So it better be a really important bomb. So you're not going to stop people from everyone's fighting. Every The Marines are over there. The Army's over Everyone's doing their thing. What makes you so damn important that you need to stop? You know, time out, boys. I've got something really bad here. I got a hammy injury. I need to cancel the Super Bowl. And it's not the way it works. So I'm asking for a bomb, and they're like, okay, bud, I'd like a unicorn. It's not happening. Come up with another plan. So I came up with a plan, and I, I, my, machine, my uh, rifle got uh, hit by a round. It was in op, and I, I asked for a saw, squat automatic. M249 machine gun. And I just said, slide it to me. And they did. And I was like, I, it was way too fast. I was like, wait a minute. What if, what if I want another one? <laughs> I mean, like everything I asked for just showed up. And I was like, oh, damn. And everyone's like, waiting on you, waiting on you. And so I was like, okay. And I stood up and man, those legs were just like they were in that house when I was a kid in college. They were concrete. And I was like, I'm right back. I got to move. I got, I, everyone's watching me. Everyone's watching me. I got to do the best acting of my life to let them know I'm good to go. Do I want to say something dramatic? Do I want to tell my family what do, do I want to say? Or do I just want to say, you know what? I'm going to see you in five seconds. I got this. We're good. You know, I, we're going to be all right. I'm going to just walk in this doorway and juice these boys and we're going to call it a day. We're going to drink some water and, and uh, maybe get a hot meal in a couple of days. We're going to be all right. And as soon as I stepped through that doorway, I was like, this is the dumbest thing 
ever. And, and then I, I shot all my rounds and I was out of ammo and I didn't know what to do at that point. And were you, were shots being fired at you at that point? Because you know, their machine guns were still going. Yeah. I kept their heads down where the, it started. As soon as I walked through, the guns opened up, but it, as soon as I started firing, they stopped. And then they were kind of shooting without looking, you know, just kind of, you know, their heads weren't up, but they were still squeezing the trigger. And even though they weren't acting, but they knew where you were though. Right. Like they knew where you were. How come they, they couldn't just, because I was walking, I was walking to the side of this. So I was basically on the stairs shooting down, trying to like, like a leaf blower, just kind of like holding the right, the uh, machine gun. If I stood, if I stayed in that doorway, I would have been smoked. So I just kind of moved towards the stairwell where I knew that they were under me and I could just kind of smoke them from below. But it turns out I'm not a very good machine gunner when I'm being shot at from two feet away and I'm on a stairwell. So I didn't, I didn't injure them. I didn't hit any of them. And I was out of ideas when that machine gun ran away from me, which is basically it shoots so many rounds that even though I'm not pulling the trigger, it's shooting. You know, it's just eating through that machine gun and my the trigger is pressed and my fingers off it, but the gun is just going to go until it's out of ammo. And uh, it's not controlled, but you've just got to point it in the direction you want it to go because you can't stop the shooting at that point. I was out of ammo, out of options, and I just ran the hell out of there. And as soon as I ran out, the bullets started flying again. And it was such a demoralizing feeling of, I didn't even wound these guys. Like not one, not even like a shrapnel cut, you know, nothing. I didn't hit them and I just ran the hell out of there. And then it got personal. And when it gets personal, you're not really making sound decisions at that point. Now you're like, I got to do this because I couldn't, I didn't know how many people were in the house. I thought I saw two and I was good. I could take two guys out. I felt good. I could take two out, but I just didn't. I wasn't thinking if a guy died after that, I would have to live with that for the rest of my life. And so I was like, I should have, I should have ended it right there. I should have walked in, put that right in their face. And I didn't. And here I wanted redemption. I wanted to prove myself. I had the chance and I completely nutted up and I completely didn't take advantage of that fairy tale opportunity to do what I joined the army to do. And I had my shot and I blew it. I was so pissed off. I was so angry. I was like, give me a rifle. I'm going back in. I'm going to take a guy with me. I'm going to put my dudes around the house and I'm going to do this old Testament style myself with my buddy. And there was a time magazine reporter there. And I had no idea that there was a videotape of it. And so it took, 15 years of the award to get through because that videotape went public and people started to see it and had that tape had the reporter not been in the room. I'm not sure anyone would even know the story or at least believe it. They just think, Oh, it's just some guy telling you know, war story, you know, the time you remember the time I caught a 12 foot bass, you know, like, Oh, did you say that? You know, when, where do I have any evidence that happened? But the, it was video recorded. And, uh, it became the first Medal of Honor with a reporter taping it. And that 
is kind of so wait so what so what happened though like you 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 ran out of the house but then what what happened your your men are still around yeah so and... so uh i put like five machine gunners outside the house there was a door behind that room with the stairwell there was an open door i figured these guys are going to make a lot of noise what i didn't want these guys to do was leave the house because now we're chasing them again and we can lose guys it was so hard to fix the enemy at that point in the war like they would shoot you and run away shoot you run away you're chasing them. I just, I got them in a house and they're not going to leave that house. They can't leave the house. Let's just keep doing things to keep them occupied so they don't run away. But I figured they thought we'd come through the back door. So I put the machine gunners around and my, my plan was to just kamikaze in there and get them to run out the back door and shoot them as they ran out. But they were, they were doing a lot of drugs, uh, IV drugs and they were, they were pretty out of it and they were just not afraid. They were, you know, they were there, they're there to die. What's an IV drug? They were, uh, their arms were tied off. They had like belts on their arms, like tourniquets. Uh, we found needles and spoons and, you know, whatever they were injecting was making them brave enough to just say, you know, we're prepared to die, but we're going to, I mean, they weren't dropping. I was hitting them repeatedly and they weren't falling. They were just, you know, zombies. Uh, if you didn't hit him in the face, uh, they were going to keep coming. And and so what happened? You go, did you go back in the house and I go back in the house? My guy gets uh, tagged a couple times. He he doesn't have a proper weapon system, but he's got a lot of hearts. Got Lawson, and he kind of just held one position. I found myself in a room that I hadn't cleared, and I'm just popping people at this door, and I don't know if it's the same guy, if it's the two guys, you know. It's dark. Uh, there's a lot of water everywhere because we lit the house up uh, with Bradleys and other vehicles. Um, so we ruptured all the water. And it was just a matter of like, am I shooting the same guy? Am I fighting the same two? What's going on? I'm in, a, I'm in one room. It's a master bedroom. And I'm dropping people at the door. And they're falling. And they're, they're crawling away, getting back up, falling. And like, is that one guy? Is that two guys? It, it, you know, your head's going... And then I just start seeing tracer rounds going horizontally. I'm in the corner of a room and there's tracer rounds going like across me. And I'm thinking, am I missing? Like, is my, did I damage my rifle? Like, what is that? You know? And then I stopped shooting and I heard, I saw it. And I was like, dude, there's a, there's a, there's a person in this room. Like I'm busy with the door and all these circus clown, you know, card, clown car opened up how many are in here did i you know i found a nest of vampires like what is how many dudes is it and then the wardrobe it's like a giant wall locker just opened up and this guy came flying out of it and he trips on the bed he ran over the bed and he had his machine he had his ak like under his armpit but he was the muzzle was behind him as he was running out so he was shooting to like get away from me and I just popped them at the door. And as he turned, I hit him in the back. And as he turned, I just saw a look on his face of just complete fear. And I was like, wow, like he's more scared than I am. That made me feel like I got, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working this. I'm, I'm getting them right. And then I thought, I'm on the bottom floor of a house and all my guys are going to come in and I train these boys. In a situation like this, you 
shoot everything. You frag, you 40 millimeter grenade machine gun, you shoot. When in doubt, shoot about. This is a high intensity enemy in the wire. We're going to kill. I'm going to get killed by my own dudes. I'm in the corner of a dark room. I got to get out of this room. So the best thing to do is get to a second story. When my guys come in, get behind cover and be like, hey, you know, I'm good. Don't shoot me. You know, I need an elevation. Let them shoot up the bottom floor. And then I'll, I'll be higher up and I could just tell them, you know, I'm alive. But the guy, when I got to the stairs, it was just covered in blood. So wait, so wait, so the guy who was running out of the room, I guess you you, you say you you were able to get. Him. I, I wounded him, but he ran up the stairs out of the door. And at that point, again, I think there's two people. This guy would be the third. At that point, there's four people. And what, what I know about this award is what what you know what they found in the house after I was. Fighting. I thought there was a guy. I knew I killed one guy at the stairs when I walked in with a rifle. I knew he died. And I knew I wounded one other guy. And then I knew I was exchanging fire with people shooting at me from a doorway. I thought it was a wounded guy. I didn't realize there was other guys coming down, doing everything else. I just, you know, I at the time, I only thought there was two. And this guy jumps out of a wardrobe. I'm like, all right, that's the third guy. There's only three people in this house. Turns out to be you know, six, five, whatever the army gives me credit for. But I'm just thinking whatever's in front of me, I'm going to put down. And I don't, I'm not doing a count. This isn't like a video game. I'm in the bonus round. You know what I mean? I'm just kind of doing my thing until it's over. Why didn't that guy in the wardrobe get you? I mean, you didn't even realize he was in the room. When, He's looking right at you and you didn't I, see so I'm him. In the corner, I'm in the corner of the room and the wardrobe's in the center of that wall. And when he falls, the wardrobe falls down on the back of his legs and he goes to run again. So he, I have night vision. He does. And so when he runs on the mattress, he loses his footing. And so he goes from shooting wildly to falling. And when he falls against the door is when I popped him. So I, I got him before he was even able to, you know, all he was doing is running for the light of the door. I don't think he had any idea. And he was wounded. Oh, he was wounded. Yeah, he was bleeding all over the place. I figured he's wounded, uh, he's scared, and I don't want to be on this floor to get killed by my own guys. So let's just kill him wherever he yeah. is, and uh, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be a, an attaboy high five. Let's get back to work. You know, there's three of them, and I got three. And I didn't realize he had a lot more fight to him. There were other guys above them, and it just kept just a circus of really bad decisions. You know, situational awareness wasn't the best. And uh, I just, uh, you know, what, there's nothing you could do once you're in that spot. What are you going to do? You're going to quit? You're going to be like, time yeah. out? Like, I need water? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I didn't know what to do. I just kept going until uh, my boy showed up. And, so, and so, so what happened? They showed up, and by that point, was it clear? So the guys in the room, I, I frag that room. Uh, it, it, there's propane everywhere. I don't want to shoot anymore because I don't want to blow the room up. I don't want to blow the propane up. Um, and uh, it, it gets into a hand-to-hand -hand thing. The whole story becomes kind of a, a story that people talk about because of that one guy and you know the fact that I used a helmet and a knife and everything else because I didn't want to shoot my rifle. Um, I didn't want to blow the building up 
I know my guys were downstairs. I was dead. They would all be dead if the building blew up. Uh, and so I, I just thought, well, he's wounded. I could take him. And I, you know, again, I didn't realize how people fight when they fight for their lives. You think, you know, you're just going to quit. And he didn't quit. He was literally fighting for his life. And, and, uh, he gave a really good fight back. And it made me question everything. Like, I don't know if I have the energy even to, maybe I can just subdue him. But now I got a broom that's on fire. Smoke is everywhere. You know, it, it just, and then he's yelling to someone who's yelling back. And I'm like, well, dude, this guy's wounded. And I've been beating him for, you know, five minutes and he's still fighting. And now a guy is yelling back. I've never met this guy. And I know he's not hurt. You know, what if, what if he's healthy? I don't have, I don't have the energy, you know, to, to do, I thought this was over. And this guy just starts biting and it got really animalistic, you know, and, and it uh, was pretty, pretty devolved. And it was two guys just like dogs going at each other. And, you know, you, you do what you can to, to, to eliminate a threat. And it's, it's horrible. It's really, really horrible. And I was able to take him out without my rifle in a really barbaric way, but, you know, I needed, to just get out of there. I don't have a helmet anymore. My vest is open. I can't find my rifle. It's somewhere on the ground. And as stupid as it sounds, I wanted a cigarette. You know, I just wanted to get on the porch and just have a quick, you know, chill and get a cigarette and use it for light. Really. It was a tactical reason too. I wanted to use my little cigarette to see what was around me. And as I'm doing that, I, I know a guy's above me. It's a second story, like patio, but there's a third story roof. And this, and it's a giant house. And this guy just jumps down. I don't know if he smelled the smoke or if he knew where I was or whatever he did. He jumped a story and a half. And it was like the Joe Theismann Monday Night Football thing. Like he, he, uh, he broke something serious. And he, he was in excruciating pain and I hadn't hit him. The pain was self-induced. He, he jumped down and just kind of hurt himself really bad. And he dropped his AK. And when he dropped his AK, the magazine came out. And now I'm hoping I remember how to load an AK and, you know, ride the bolt forward. And, you know, I, I'm not an expert in AKs, but I'm doing my best to learn adrenaline, you know, and uh, I, I put it on fully automatic and I just zipped whatever he had left in that magazine. But man, I missed him uh, fully automatic two feet away. I, I, it went everywhere but him. Uh, but it caused him to fall and realize this is, this is bad. And uh, I ran into the room, found my rifle and just shot him. And he kind of jumped to a second canopy. And that's when the machine gunners outside saw him and took him out. So the day was over. Wow. And first off, who were they? Were they Iraqis? Were they from somewhere else? Did they know each other? Like, who were these enemies? You know, we found, so we eventually got the bombs. The craziest part is, is that when all this ends, the bombs are like, we're dropping the bomb. And we're like, no, we're in the house. Like, we were searching everything as the bombs came in. and so. 
we we the fight ends and we leave a bomb comes in it's a dud we go back in we do more searching another bomb comes in that's a dud which i I mean again i don't know what the hell how that works but then the third one came in and blew up the two duds and the other one and that just it just was the biggest explosion ever uh but in the in, in the interim time between duds and bombs we found a Hezbollah flag, uh, a turba, which is like a, a prayer stone that Shias use. When they prostrate themselves, they don't put their heads on the ground. They have a stone that they put their head on. Uh, but the Palestinian liberation Hezbollah, there was an Iranian. They weren't. Spe- I was speaking Arabic. There was a time when we were kind of yelling at each other. Uh, they were speaking. They weren't speaking Arabic on the videotape. You can clearly hear them not speaking arabic so uh we don't really know exactly you know but just judging from the artifacts that we found we believe that they were hezbollah um somewhere with either iranian revolutionary guard influence or somewhere from another section not not uh, not iraqis and not uh not sunni uh al-qaeda so you were never able to identify exactly who these people were no, there was not enough time between we pulled the bodies out and, and honestly there was a war going on. We're you know no one thought this was a Medal of Honor moment. No one thought that this was the end of our fight. It was a day. And honestly, you don't really know what happened. You know, you don't you don't really kind of have a grasp of, you know, just pile up the bad guys, mark them for the registration to come and get them and move on. We got another mission to do. And we did it. And we just kept going. What happens that night? Like you're 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 falling asleep. Do you just you're so tired from everything? You just fall right to sleep, or are you thinking about? Oh yeah, I remember. What I remember and... talking to Lawson and Aware that night, and just saying that was the craziest shit I've ever gone through in my like. I was like that was insane, and I really didn't. I wasn't. Michael Ware ends up writing an article in Time Magazine that becomes the cover story that is this story. And I wasn't really even thinking of him as a reporter. He was such a huge part of, he was in the house. He was a part of my decision making. I really developed a trust with him. Like I, I, I looked at him like a soldier, not as a, and I hated reporters. I didn't trust the media at all. I didn't even want a reporter. And he was Australian and I had no connection to him. But after that house fight, like we had a thing where I was just like, this is my dude. Like I was in the street and I made the decision to go back in. And it was Michael Ware, a reporter in the street that was like, I'm with you. And I'm like, awesome. You know what I mean? Like, so he's in there with no weapons. Nothing. He's in there with no weapons and people are firing at him. Like, how did he survive? I almost killed him because he was running around. Listen, for years. The contention between Michael Ware, I didn't have a relationship with Michael Ware until, I mean, I, I respected him and I admired him. He was like a big brother to me. But for years, he was upset at me because I did. I was telling people he didn't go in the house. I thought he put his camera in the house and left. I did. I when he made a video, a, a documentary called Only the Dead for HBO. And in that documentary was the first time that I realized that not only was he in the house, he was right behind me the entire time that he was filming everywhere I went. I had no concept of that. 
I was he in the room with you with the room with the wardrobe? He was a bit well. So it's super dark and it's more audio and flashes than it is actual video because of the of the light uh, in there. But he was in that room because that's the room. He he starts whispering, "I'm a journalist," and I was like, "Who is that? Is that Lawson? Is that one of my guys? Is that a bad guy?" These people are sneaking around. And I took a shot at the door. So he is in, he is in that master bedroom because there's a scene where he had the camera and a round went right by him because I, I took a shot at whoever was coming through that door. Guy, what if he, what if you, what if the guy in the wardrobe had hit you? Was he just dead then because the guy in the wardrobe would have gone after him? I don't know what Michael Ware was thinking. Honestly, I, I embedded when I got out of the army, I, I, I wanted to be like Michael Ware because I was so impressed by him and I started to embed. Uh, for I, I did a couple uh, uh, trips to Iraq, and I realized that it's a, no one cares about you. Like they don't give a damn whether you live or die. There's no fidelity. You're a, a burden to them. They don't. So honestly, I I don't know what he was thinking. He could have been killed by our forces, by his force. You know, the enemy. Uh, you know, he he was there to cover a story and. But I don't, I like to think he wasn't there to cover the story. I think he, I mean, I know how he feels about me now because I feel the same way about him, but I don't know what road brought Michael Ware into my life, but I know that it was so, he was so damaged that he had to be in Fallujah. And I don't know what that says about our souls or anything, but I really believe that he went in there because of me. Like he wasn't covering the story. He was like, I talked you into this and I'm going to stick with you. And that's what has kind of glued him to me for the rest of my life where he's a part of our, our, he's a ramrod, you know, he's a, he's a part of my team. Well, you know, remember the ramrods, Michael Ware is one of those guys. He's a part of that team and will be forever. He's, he's an army American soldier, even though he's an Australian journalist, um, He's the real deal, and I believe he was in there for me. I do. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So 14 years later, 2018, you get these calls... And you finally pick up the phone and someone tells you, I can't tell you what's going on, but you have to take this call the next day. The next day happens. They reschedule again and again. And you were starting to think you were in trouble. I, I would absolutely. be scared to death. It would be like, yeah. it would be yeah. like the IRS calling. Like we have to talk to you, <laughs> but we can't tell you what it's about. Right, Just be right. available. To, Cause that you're, the IRS is, <laughs> needs to talk to you. Right. Right. Have your receipt. Right. So like, how scared were you then? <laughs> I got a lawyer, man. I, I, I mean, listen, I, the war. Remember Susan mm -hmm. Lucci from All, All My Children? Yes. Yeah. 
she was like nominated for a daytime Emmy for 18 years, whatever got it. Yeah. And, and Susan Lucci would be there every daytime Emmy and, and, you know, put her head down and she'd just be like, it's an honor to be nominated. I was nominated for the Medal of Honor in 04. The media was talking about it. I was the next thing. It was going to happen. And it never happened. And so eventually you think, well, it's not going to happen. Who gives a shit? I mean, look at it. I'm alive and I love, I have a family, I have a job and starting businesses. I'm not army guy anymore. I finally got to a point where when the news broke that I got the Medal of Honor, a person I worked with was like, a guy with your name is getting the Medal of Honor. And I was like, yeah, it's weird. Like I was in a spot where no one knew I was an army guy. I wrote a book house to house, but it's a book. They don't see your face. I was doing radio, but it's not your face. And I was talking, I was an army guy. That life was in a sarcophagus, in a, you know, uh, it was in a time capsule. It was locked away, buried. I was not army soldier, dude. I, I thought about making a living and making money. And, and now they're asking questions, but they know things. They know things about these dead guys and the Gerber that was used and the helmet and how they suspect these people died. And I'm like, listen, I've seen this on the news. I got a lawyer and I, I, I can, you know, I, I said, you talk to my lawyer. I'm not talking to you. I'm not telling you. I don't remember anything. I have a very, very bad memory. I don't even know if I was in Fallujah, to be honest with you. You have to speak to my attorney. And, and the guy, I, I like how your lawyer, your, your lawyer says to you, you're either going to be, he says, I don't know what's going on, but you're either going to be ambassador to France <laughs> or you're going to jail for right. 40 years. Because they're like, we can't, we, we cannot confirm nor deny a positive or negative disposition. What the hell does that mean? You can't confirm or deny good or bad. How is news ever broken? I've got really good or bad. There was an accident, James. Well, what happened? I can't confirm or deny positive or negative information. You'd punch an ER doctor in the face. Why couldn't the government just... I want to know what's happening. Yeah, why couldn't the government just say, don't worry, this call's going to be fine, just relax. Eventually, eventually they did. When when the lawyer got involved and they saw that I was having an emotional Chernobyl, they they did something about it. And because it but listen, the Medal of Honor is such first of all, they don't give a damn what you think happened. You're never interviewed for the Medal of Honor. They don't care. You can write a book, you can make a movie, you can do 85 interviews. Your account means nothing. If you killed 10 people in a shootout at the OK Corral and witnesses only saw two people get shot, you only shot two people. It's what two people, not what one person saw, it's what two people saw. You have to have two witnesses to everything that happened. And they are sworn, they're doing their statements. You have no idea what went down, how it went down. Uh, and you don't know, you know, it could be, who knows? So it's all secret. And there's no, it's not like you get nominated for the Medal of Honor and they don't approve you. You get like a runner-up award. There's no silver medal. There's no, you know, like, uh, well, you didn't get the Medal of Honor, so here's a Distinguished Service Cross or here's a Bronze Star. With if you didn't get the Medal of Honor, you're not good enough. Go away. So over time, I think a lot of people thought maybe the story was either bullshit or it wasn't real. Um. And then the video comes out, the documentary comes out, and everyone's like, whoa, this is actually really happened. And it is all on tape. And the guy's book, 
is, is what happened on the videotape. That's really crazy. And then you, you start to hear more and more. And then Obama is leaving office. Uh, Secretary Carter, uh, Ash Carter, just passed away not too long ago. Wonderful guy. But he did a review of all these awards that were overlooked. And that award gets approved. And then it goes, and then Obama left office and uh, Trump took over. So they were like, the next day, Trump's on the phone. And he's like, listen, this is happening. And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, give it to, I, I didn't know what to do. But my my instinct was, I don't want to do, I've got a lot of good things going on right now. Like, I got a lot of cool things happening in my life that I've worked really hard for. I don't want to be a professional veteran. You know what I mean? I don't want to. I don't want this to be the thing that now is the reason why I get an opportunity. I don't want the opportunity to be because of this. So when I came home from the war, I ran for Congress, and I was by far the best candidate. I knew the issues. I could debate the issues. Democrats liked me. Republicans liked me. Uh, everything was cool. I knew my constituents. I knew what they wanted. They wanted a representative. They didn't want to be proselytized to. But money and big time guys who wanted to pay their you know way through, uh, they went with the big big money guys. Well, one of the big money guys got in trouble with the law. Ends up you know going to jail, and that seat opens up right as I am announced that I'm a Medal of Honor recipient. And so while I was working my tail off as just a business guy, veteran, no fancy awards, just a guy who cared about his people and knew the issues, now they're like, dude, it's yours. Democrats that hated me, Republicans that hated me, were all like, this is yours. Like, no one's running. No, you won't have any competition. You are the next congressman. Take it. It's yours. You earned it. You're a Medal of Honor recipient. No one could touch a Medal of Honor recipient. It's the Nobel Pulitzer Prize. There's 60 living of you. You're the only one living from Iraq. You're our next congressman. And I was like, dude, I've wanted this for 10. I've worked on this for 12 years of my life, going to every rubber chicken dinner, every barbecue, kissing babies, shaking hands. But it's only good enough because I have this award now. I'm like, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I, I have more respect. I, I don't I don't want that. That's not how this works. I'm not gonna be like you. I'm not gonna, I'm not I know who I am. I know what I want to do. I know what I can do. I was a better candidate 12 years ago. I wouldn't have been in jail, right? But my ambition is not I have to do this. I, I have to be different now. And that that was a my first challenge of is this gonna be about me or is this gonna be about the guys that didn't get attention and the guys that served and did everything I asked them to do? And so, you know, when an opportunity came out to tell my Medal of Honor story, I wanted the book to be about my the my unit, the Ramrods, two two, first geometry division. You wanna talk about the Medal of Honor? I want to talk about them. They are why I'm alive. They are black, they're white, they're gay, they're straight, they're Democrat, they're Republican, they're American soldiers. And we get, we disagree, but we get things done. And we're not divisive. We're tribal, but our tribe is bigger than any other tribe because we have that in common, each other. We're looking out for each other. We're looking out for our nation. We don't fight because we hate the enemy. 
We don't hate China. We don't fight Russia because we hate Russia. We fight because we love. We love America. We love each other. We love our way of life. That's what you fight for. That's what you bleed for and what you die for. You don't hate the enemy more than you love what you're defending. And if you make it about, you lose your soul. I, I felt myself having a road to Damascus moment where it's like, wow, all these opportunities I wanted so bad, investment opportunity, God liked my idea six months ago, but now that I'm a Medal of Honor recipient, he wants me on his board and he wants me to do this and I can expand and I can hire more and I could, wow. Or I could do everything I was doing before, but just change the focus. When the attention comes to you, bring it to the people that don't get it. And you're going to find that that social media follower world that I've avoided. You can follow me on go to hell. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to join the army, serve your country, be decent to people, get involved in, in civic things. That's my social media. Do you think though being a congressman could have expanded that voice for you? No, I think it would have polluted it. I think it would have become, mm. you're an R, you're a D, you're a Trump guy, you're an anti-Trump guy. You're about you. Your ideas are so great. Let's go on Sean Hannity and talk about it. Your ideas are so fantastic. Let's see what Rachel Maddow thinks about it. I don't give a damn about those people. Hey, they're wonderful people. They might be super smart and they make a lot of money, but that's not why I'm on this earth. Um, I want to be a congressman in my community. I want to have, you know, I want to be a leader in any organization that wants me in it. I want, those are things we should all be doing. Um, but they're not legacy, you know, board millionaires and people that need Wikipedia entries. They can put all that in there. That's all great. You got to know who you are and you got to know what you want and you got to know what you can actually accomplish. And when I paralyzed my ambition, because that's what I did in uniform, because I thought I missed war. I thought you paralyze your ambition in uniform because it's your duty. And I thought, wouldn't it be crazy if I actually lived my life that way and I wasn't in uniform? And why haven't I been doing that for 14 years? I'm, I'm writing this book and I'm realizing I've screwed up everything. There were people in my life loyal and decent that I loved that I turned my back on because I had to do something that the world would see as acceptable, that the army would be happy with, or that, that, that other people would say, wow, that guy's pretty cool. I, Oh, I should follow him on Twitter. And yet I wasn't, I, I, I didn't know who I was. I, and, and I lost my sense of what was important and what my compass was. And this moment, which you would think you're going to go eat shrimp and go, you know, join the cast of Yellowstone, <laughs> you know what I mean? do a, a TLC show, my Medal of Honor life, you know, start a reality show. And I'm like, no, now's the opportunity to actually prove once again, I have good people in my life. I have people I love and I'm proud of, and I want to be with them. And I have 40 guys from my unit and gold star parents that lost their sons. And I want to be in their lives too. I don't want to, they, they broke this time capsule for me. You know, they, I didn't, I didn't ask for this. You, you put this on my plate. Guess what? If I'm going to live, every year for the rest of my life in 2004 
I'm going to remind you of the people that got me through it and the people I love and admire. And so we're doing it together and it's changed my life for the better. And, and I love, I love the title of the book is of course, remember the ramrods. Like these are the people who were there with you. And the implication is they all kind of are part of this medal of honor with you and you're giving them that respect. And so what's, what's next for you now? Like, what do what do you see as the future? If it's not, you know, one, uh, a TLC reality show, I'm running for us Senate. No, I said, screw, <laughs> screw the house. I'm much <laughs> bigger, yeah, bigger, I'm, it's I'm, better. I'm announcing on the 15th, my candidacy. No, I'm, um, so I, I did a radio show in my hometown of Buffalo and I've been doing that for like the last seven years. And, uh, and I love it. I, I, I love being from Buffalo. I'm super proud to be from a great part of working class blue collar people. But I, I really am addicted to discourse. I think that we do confrontation really bad in America where I can disagree with you, but I yeah. have to like dominate you or proselytize that, that it's evangelical. When I talk about the way I see the world, that it's somehow evangelical, that I, I need to convert you to my side. I discovered that, you know, radio is very much like a barracks in the army where half of the people love you, half the people hate you. If they don't have good information, they're going to put out whatever information they can. So, you know, you've got, you know, people talking about how broomsticks are standing up because of the lunar cycle we're in. You know, you've got, you know, wrestling is fake and the, you know, wrestling's real, the space program's fake. And, you know, all these different people in between of how crazy the world has become. And yet, it's not really fascinating what people think, but how they think. I, I love having debates whether it's, you know, any of the touchstone issues that could drive people crazy. And it's, okay, so you're pro-choice, you're pro-life. I'm bored with that. I don't really care. Don't defend why you believe what you believe. Tell me how you got to that point and tell me, you know, why you believe that that is worthy of calling into a radio show and screaming at the top of your lungs. Because ultimately what you'll find is that we're all selfish and we all have our reasons for what we believe. And so if you just took it to you're a Yankee fan and I'm a Red Sox fan, I'm a Yankee fan, you're a Red Sox fan. I don't like your team. I think your team sucks. And I like it better when my team wins. But ultimately, what is the basis behind if I'm right about an issue and you're wrong about an issue? Does your green with me make my issue what? And I'm empowered that more people are going to think like me and therefore it what? It validates where I'm coming from. Is it a selfish exercise in ego and hubris? Or is it really just about taking the time to listen? Taking the time to just to listen to where you're coming from and realizing I don't, people disagree with me, 90% of them will disqualify their own opinion in the first five minutes. We can have a gun debate. And someone will disqualify what they're saying. And I'll be like, okay, fine. Do I need to point that out to you? I don't think I do. I think some people just need to vent. They're frustrated and they just want to scream. Yeah. And they want you to be an emotional tampon. And you're just there absorbing and saying, okay, I hear you, bud. You're mad. I'm mad too. But guess what? You're my neighbor. And it's garbage day. All right? I need you to focus 
on what we actually do as a culture of society. We've got to actually do this together. You're going to disagree with me on some things. You're going to agree with me on others. But is it that if it's that serious? Well, that's just another example of of our inability to to have discourse. We can't communicate. Uh, we're too insecure. You if you're right about an issue, shut up. You're right. Like what? What? Why do I have to tell you I'm right? At the end of the day, if the scoreboard's fourteen to nothing, James, I beat you. Do you need to be reminded? I beat you. I don't need to tell you I beat you, right? Or I lost. You want to tell me that you beat me? That's great. What 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 can I do? We're we're schizophrenic and it's it's not helping. No, I I agree with you, and I um I find that what's been very freeing for me is every issue where someone I start to feel tense, like oh this person's disagreeing with me for some reason that's personal to them and I don't really want to get involved in this, is that I very quickly steel man the argument, meaning if I were him or her, here's how I would argue against me. Like even, I would try to argue their point for them even better than they can. And then it becomes very freeing. Like then, okay, I could see their point. And in fact, I'll even advise people in the middle of an argument, no, if you're trying to convince me, you should really do it this way. <laughs> and then I might be persuaded. Right. Like instead of calling me an insult or instead of saying, oh, you're this or you're that, right. just say these things. And then I have to question myself. Like it's so easy for you to do this. You're right. So, and, but, but again, though, I always, I always bring it down to, I would meet someone who would tell me like who they voted for. And, and the, I love body, body language is huge. And I love, you know, when, when someone will say something and then they're like recoiling for like a, uh, you know, a, a, a roadhouse sidekick to the head, you know, like a Patrick Swayze, you know, like they're, they know what they're saying is going to induce a reaction and they're preparing for the counterpunch. It's like, wait, you don't even care about me. Like, you don't even want to be my friend. You know, what you're doing is a series of like, in the old days, we posted on social media because we wanted to share. And now we're posting on social media because we want to comment. We want a reaction yeah. to what we're sharing. That's poison. That's poison. I could drive to your house in the 90s and be like, James, you're a jackass in my car out the window. I didn't wait for people to come out and agree with me that you're a jackass. Right? right? There, but there's now a people difference are afraid. between screaming something. You're afraid to say an opinion. Ex well, but, but, but Not you, but honestly, in general. they're afraid to say it. No, no, no. But you're absolutely right. The, the other issue is the, I used to think that if someone told me their position on an issue, I knew everything about them. And then I thought, you know, that's really kind of narrow-minded and obtuse to think that you, one issue, I, if, you t if you defend the Second Amendment, I'm like, let me just play a game here. <laughs> you know, I'm going to check these boxes and you're going to tell me your opinion. Open that envelope. Am I right or am I wrong? I've become Chris Angel of politics where, I'm, you know, I know everything. And then I started to be right about it. Yeah, you're right. That everything, it's like a menu. Like, like if you were, let, let's yeah. say, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. One thing I noticed is during COVID, if you're a Democrat, you believe these medicines work. And if you're a Republican, you believe these medicines work. Like, why would that it's be insane. correlated? Why would pro-choice and pro-life be correlated to what medicines you think work for COVID? Or guns or, 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 you know, it, it does. It's like, you wear the color. I used to think about this. Like I never got into country music, right? 
And people would be like, you should give it a try. It's really great. And I remember telling people, I don't want to ever be able to judge your taste in music by what, you know, what headgear you have on. Like, if you're wearing a hat, it's the only genre of music that when you put a hat on, everyone's like, I know what you're into. You know what I mean? And and it's strange to me that that happened with Trump. Where, like, I, I would see a Cincinnati Reds fan and I'd be like, oh, my God, is that a... <laughs> make America greater. Like, are you a fan of a red team or are you on the red team? And everything falls into line. And I'm thinking there's got to be a pro-choice gun owner. And there's got to be a person that doesn't trust vaccinations, but also believes in science. And there has to be someone that trusts vaccinations, but not just this one. Where's the nuance? Are we that stupid? that we just believe a campaign commercial? Are we that lazy that we become like a USA Today pie graph generation? Or if it's not in a pie graph, you can't follow anything? You're you're right. But I, I could tell you just from my experience with podcasts and, and all the guests I've spoken to from such a wide range of backgrounds, and you probably have the same experience as a radio host. I think the majority of people agree with you, but only a small minority is allowed to be heard. And because otherwise you're canceled if you're somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle. Like if you're in the middle, it's almost the worst thing. Like, cause then you have no friends on either side and and everybody's quiet. But I think that quiet people who who believe in nuance is actually the majority, but you just never hear from them. Yeah, it's almost like when someone tells you a moderate, you think to yourself, oh, you're afraid to call yourself. Yeah, or you're a commie. If you say you're a moderate, you're either, you're either a right. commie or a fascist yeah. and you're lying about yeah. it. You're lying about it. You're just trying to get you know, into, the, into the hotel bar and get a seat. But, but honestly, the, the thing that opened my eyes, I get the Medal of Honor and the first event the Army sends me to was Gay Pride Week in New York, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, what? You know, like, what is happening here? Why am I going to Gay Pride Week? What? What about this doesn't seem right? So I'm automatically thinking, you know, am I, uh, what's my reception going to be? And I'm walking around Gay Pride Week in New York, and I'm meeting transgender people that are saying, go kick ISIS's ass. Thank you for your service. I'm meeting people that are gay straight in between that are all saying, go get them. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And I'm like, well, I'm watching CNN too much. I'm watching Fox News way too much. I need to stop watching MSNBC because America, everywhere they've sent me in this country, from Utah to San Francisco to New York, Florida, Texas, and everything else, I've never run into anyone who's against the military. And, and the few people that are against America are just kids that are trying to shock you. You know, it's like looking at Howard Stern's career and thinking, you know, what. There are. There was an age that we were at where we just said, what does dad say? I'm against it. You know, I, I haven't found my voice yet. So what I'm going to get is shock. I'm going to shock you into thinking I'm a serious person. And maybe if I say something outrageous, everyone will think, well, let's talk about that. I got the room's attention by screaming, you know, something nuts. And there's a part of me that, that did that as a kid. We mature. And I, I don't, I don't see America as divided as we're told. And I, I don't think it helps at all to constantly remind people that there's, you know, the house is going to burn down. 
The house is on fire. I need you to know that the house is burning. Let's put the fire out. Let, let's actually do something about the house burning. Let's not lock the basement door and run out and scream that the house is on fire. You know, like, let's actually actively work to not be divisive. And it doesn't mean we're going to lose our principles. I'm not changing how I see the world, nor am I going to change how I tell you I disagree with you. But I can leave a conversation with deep disagreement without it devolving into something where I don't think you're a good person. And more importantly, I want the world to know you're a bad person. Like my belief in you is amplified by now sharing what I feel you are because you either are smart, you disagree, or you made a point that I don't want to address. Like you were right about something and my inability to deal with it is now like you must be destroyed. You have the Polaroid that will expose me for the fraud that I am. I must kill you and take the Polaroid. I, I think that that is, uh, it's toxic and it's not who we are. And I, I refuse to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't, I don't have apologies for how I see the world. I don't feel the need to apologize. More importantly, I don't think you need to apologize for being 180 degrees for me. Well, David, it's it's really been such a pleasure to talk to you. I, I had no idea what to expect from this conversation. I read your book. It was it was riveting. It was a page turner. Really good writer and 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 storyteller. And you know, you won the Medal of Honor for for incredible acts of bravery. And I will tell you what they didn't tell you back in two thousand four, which is thank you for your service because. Look, I think thank you for your continued service and and putting yourself out there and dealing with these nuances that society is trying to ignore. And I think that's that's the bravest thing one can do right now from my limited perspective. Hey. So so thank you. Hey, that means a lot. And I'm a big fan of yours and what you represent, what you stand for. I'll be just leave you with this. Uh everyone, you know, you get the Medal of Honor, everyone thanks you for your service. And it's weird because you don't know what to say. Like, you're like, well, college wasn't working out. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I had some time. I wanted to travel abroad. How do you respond to someone thanking you for your service? And I ran into an old, crusty Vietnam veteran where I get all of my wisdom from. I can't ever question what my future is because the Vietnam generation did it before me and they're navigating it. And they're amazing Americans. Uh, my favorite people are Vietnam veterans. And this Vietnam vet told me, the next time someone thanks you for your service, look them in the eye and tell them you're worth it. And then it's fundamentally changed my life. And it's taken all the awkwardness and weirdness away. And it also breaks people's brains. It's like, you know, you sneeze, someone says, God bless you. Or you're saying like, Jesus loves you. It's like, wait a minute. I'm not prepared for that. You know, I just sneeze. But when you, when you, when someone thanks you for your service and you look them in the eye and say you're worth it, it, to me, it changes the whole paradigm of what we're here to do. We all have a war. We all have gone through adversity. We're all dealing with cancer, divorce, heartbreak, economic woes, whatever it is. Uh, and people every day find a reason to wake up and fight. We fight physically. We fight emotionally, you know, spiritually, you name it. Uh, people are showing valor every day. And when you ask a veteran why they do what they do, it, it's because of you. It's because of, of this great experiment that we have. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. And it doesn't matter who the president is. 
what party is in charge. Uh, America is still the greatest thing that's ever happened, and we're going to keep it that way. I agree. And and David Blavia, you know, author of Remember the Ramrods, again, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your experiences. And I, I hope people, I know people will enjoy this and 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 learn from it. And And I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it.